It's not surprising that many people's Bible from cover to cover odyssey crashes and burns long before they reach the end of its first five books. Just as the action begins to pick up a little in the book of Numbers, readers are confronted with seemingly endless lists of laws, many of which rehash those which they are already familiar with thanks to the book of Leviticus. There's a simple reason for this. Two, in fact. Firstly, of the hundreds of thousands of adults who leave Egypt and are present when the Ten Commandments are issued at Sinai, only Moses, Joshua and Caleb are still alive, making a second reading of the law reasonably essential. Secondly, Moses knows that he will not be leading his people across the River Jordan and into their new homeland. The retelling of the laws which are seen as the most important ones is vital if the Israelites are going to survive as a nation once they reach Canaan. The name Deuteronomy means second law-giving. As for the book itself, there is a tangible frisson of excitement as Moses reminds Israel's people who they are, where they came from and where they are going. The content takes the form of three sermons as Moses recaps the laws that were dished out in earlier books, reminds everyone that they are only free because God loves them and reassures them that even if they mess things up, they can still turn back to God. The message throughout is pretty much keep the faith and make sure that God is a part of the new world order in the promised land. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, episode 43, The Giant's Bed. Welcome to season five of the only podcast aimed at day trippers who want to nose around the world's best-selling book without actually opening it up. My belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people, and so you are most welcome. For those of you who have just joined, this podcast simply takes you through the Bible 20 minutes at a time. I'm your tour guide, and I point out interesting places on the way. My background is in advertising, where I'm often asked to turn complex information into something that is easy for the public to grasp, which is basically all that I'm doing here. And, believe it or not, I did once help run a church in London. It's incredible how much it has thrived since I left. Anyway, here we are at the banks of the River Jordan, the Israelites' final stop before they officially enter the land which the Bible's readers are told was promised to their ancestor Abraham centuries earlier. Of all the Bible's history books, Deuteronomy covers the shortest time span, around one month, but it contains the essential information that Moses believes the Israelites will need to thrive in their new home. Many of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers get a second airing, most notably the Ten Commandments, but rather than simply rehash them, Deuteronomy also expands on them. Deuteronomy appears to have been a later addition to the Pentateuch, as the Bible's first five books are known. It is believed to have begun as a list of laws collected during the reign of Israel's King Josiah in the 8th century BC. Experts believe that it was added to during the exile in Babylon, and then again after the Jews returned to Judah in the 5th century BC. The tone of the account of Israel's history in Deuteronomy is palpably different from that in the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers. 
The language is more descriptive and personal, and many Bible experts believe that it has different authors. Collectively, the writers are known as the Deuteronomist and are believed to have been a group of Levite scribes working sometime between the 7th and 5th centuries BC. The book later served as an introduction to the books of Joshua through to Kings. It was then added to again and moved to the Pentateuch, where it serves as a final cabin doors to manual check before the Israelites land in Canaan. Forty years after the Israelite slaves first leave Egypt, they are camped at Moab, ready to enter the promised land of Canaan. Most of those present are a generation who neither saw Egypt, experienced the hardship of living there, nor the euphoria of being led to freedom by Moses. It's time for a history lesson. Deuteronomy picks up in exactly the same place where the book of Numbers left the Israelites, camped in desert country across the Jordan from the city of Jericho. Moses' initial speech tracks the people's journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, the place where Israel's journey grinds to a halt after spies return from Canaan with stories of terrifying giants. The writer adds that this journey can be completed in 11 days by taking the Mount Seir road, but anyone who has read the book of Numbers knows that the Israelites don't reach Kadesh until they have been travelling for around two years. The suggestion is that it is the people's continued grumbling and rebellions that causes this delay. Rather than being a paved highway, the Mount Seir road means in the direction of Mount Seir, which involves a journey across the mountains of Edom. It is some time between mid-January and mid-February, 39 years into the wilderness journey, that Moses begins his recap. He describes how, after almost a year at the base of Mount Sinai, God told Israel to break camp and paints a detailed picture of the land which they were to claim for their own. This includes the hill country ruled by the Amorite tribe, the desert land south of the Dead Sea known as the Arabah, the mountains and western foothills, the Negev and the Mediterranean coast. It encompasses the land of the Canaanites, Lebanon to the north and as far east as the great Euphrates River. According to Moses, the Israelites were to take ownership of the land, which they believe God promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their children. Moses explains why Israel now has tribal elders who help with the day-to-day -day business of governing the people. The pressure on one man to properly address each problem and dispute when the size of Israel's population matched the number of stars in the night sky was overwhelming. Moses mentions his wish at the time that God should further increase Israel's numbers by a factor of 1,000 and bless them as he promised, though the original account is somewhat less charitable. The judges are only installed on the advice of Moses' father-in-law Jethro, who clearly hates seeing his daughter's husband struggle with so much admin. The book of Numbers relates how 70 elders are only appointed when Moses asks God to kill him as the burden of responsibility involved in carrying the whole of Israel is too great. Moses describes how judges were appointed with the full backing of the people and how these men ranked in order of seniority from those overseeing 10 people to those commanding a thousand. The men were told to judge fairly and not to show partiality, regardless of whether the complainants were Israelites or foreign converts, or whether the case was large or small. 
The judges are to fear no one, as their judgment is seen as God's judgment, and only those cases that are too difficult are to be brought to Moses. Moses recounts the journey from Mount Sinai towards the hill country dominated by the Amorites, and describes the desert which they pass through as that vast and dreadful wilderness. He remembers encouraging his people to go up and take the land from the Amorites, confident that God had already given it to them. They had no need to be afraid, he told them. All they needed to do was claim it for Israel. When the leaders suggested some reconnaissance in advance of the attack, Moses agreed and chose one man from each tribe to explore the enemy territory. The men returned with a positive report and presented Moses some delicious fruit which they found on their sortie, but then fear set in. The tribespeople looked powerful. Victory may not be a certainty. Doubt turned into rebellion, and the journey north ground to an abrupt and potentially terminal halt. Moses goes on to describe the hysteria that set in once news of the spies' report spread through the camp. To add drama to his account of the Israelites' exploits some four decades earlier, Moses refers to his audience as you. You were unwilling. You rebelled. You grumbled, he tells them. To be fair, aside from Joshua and Caleb, none of the people here were adults at the time, and so what Moses actually means is your parents. It is the older generation who decided not to push on into Canaan, who moaned that they were better off in Egypt, and who went weak at the knees at the thought of warriors in impregnable cities with, quote, walls up to the sky. The spies who returned from a reconnaissance mission into enemy territory even claimed they spotted a race of giants known as the Anak, and Moses' eye roll as he relates this is palpable. He explains how he dealt with what he assumed was a temporary wrinkle in Israel's confidence. He urged his people not to be afraid, as God would take care of everything. Moses assured them that God would carry them through, just like a father carries his son, using the escape from Egypt and Israel's ongoing survival in the forbidding desert as an example of this care and concern. Despite God very clearly travelling ahead of them in pillars of fire and smoke and dictating when they should move and where they could camp safely, the people failed to trust him, Moses says. He then recounts the moment where the parents of his audience were denied access to Canaan. God finally lost patience with them, he says, calling them an evil generation and refusing to let anyone into the promised land except Caleb, who, regular listeners of this podcast know, is not even an Israelite. Caleb is described as following God wholeheartedly, but readers also know that Joshua has been spared too. Why Joshua and Caleb are not mentioned in the same breath is uncertain. Perhaps it is because Caleb is seen as part of the common herd, while Joshua is already one of Israel's leaders. Moses includes himself as one of the many who won't personally get to enjoy the land of milk and honey, but adds that Joshua has been selected to lead the people into their new home. According to Moses, it is the little ones who do not know good from bad who were told that they would enjoy the riches of Canaan. These are now the adults who he is talking to now. Back in Kadesh, their mothers and fathers were told to turn east to the Red Sea, back into the desert. It is at this point in the story that, full of remorse, 
Israel's soldiers strapped on their weapons, deciding to launch an attack in the blind belief that God wanted them to fight the hill tribes that stood between them and Canaan. Moses describes a message from God ordering the men to call off the attack as he had not sanctioned it, but Israel's blood was up and they failed to listen to God, marching arrogantly into what Moses knew would be inevitable humiliation. In Moses' account, the Amorite tribesmen who lived in the hills chased Israel's army like a swarm of bees, and the defeated people wept at God. God ignored their tears and grounded them in Kadesh for the foreseeable future, a people without purpose or direction, whose metaphorical wind had left their sails, and who must now face the grinding monotony of year after year of life in the desert, with no reward at the end of it. The account of Israel's wilderness travels is somewhat different in Deuteronomy as it is in the book of Numbers, as all hostility from Edom is airbrushed from the record. In the book of Numbers, Edom outright refuses to allow Israel safe passage through its territory, despite the most diplomatic requests offering payment for food and water, and promises made to stick to the main highway through the country. On the one hand, this could suggest a willingness on the part of Moses to forgive Edom for the huge inconvenience which it caused him, or it might simply be that the author of Deuteronomy is writing without access to the book of Numbers. Readers are told that the Israelites spend a long time navigating the mountainous land around Edom before God orders them to head north through this potentially hostile country. Moses is warned not to provoke the Edomites who will be afraid of the threat which Israel poses to them. He is told that God gave the land to Esau and his descendants and that Edom is not included in the land grab promised to the Israelites. Moses' people are to tread carefully and pay for any food or water which they use. Moses tells his listeners that God has looked after them and protected them during their long wilderness journey and that they have not lacked essentials on the way. Here in Deuteronomy's account, the Israelites simply go past their relatives from Edom, passing effortlessly into Moab without any time-consuming rerouting. Similarly, Deuteronomy's Israelites are forbidden to harass or provoke anyone in Moab. This is the country given by God to Abraham's nephew Lot for his grandson in the book of Genesis, and none of it forms part of the promised land. As an aside, readers are told that a band of giants known as the Emites once lived in Moab, and that they were every bit as terrifying as the Anakites who Israel's spies claimed they saw roaming Canaan. There appears to be a whole mythology around Old Testament giants, which Deuteronomy's first readers must be familiar with. The Emites are described as a kind of Rephaite, and though both tribes are mentioned back in the book of Genesis, no reference is made in that book to their physical stature. Deuteronomy also mentions some new news, that Esau's descendants drove out the Horites from Edom. In Genesis, Edom is known as Seir, and the Horites are recorded as its original inhabitants. Detour over, the history lesson continues. 38 years have passed and Moses is given the order to cross a valley named Zered, by which time all Israel's fighting men from the previous generation had died. This is seen as God honouring the promise made back in the book of Numbers that not one adult who left Egypt save Caleb and Joshua would enter Canaan. 
Readers are told that God's hand is actively against these soldiers, suggesting that this is a cull rather than death by natural causes. Zered barely gets a mention in the book of Numbers, but Moses tells the Israelites that it was here they were ordered to bypass Moab and not harass or provoke the Ammonites whose territory also lay in their way. Like Moab, Ammon was a grandson of Lot and consequently the kingdom falls under divine protection. Excitingly, Zered is one of the few locations mentioned in the Israelites' wanderings that can be identified. It is believed to be Wadi al-Hassa, near the Dead Sea town of al-Safi in Jordan. Moses adds that the giant Rephaites also once lived in Ammon, where they were known as Zamzamites, but they were driven out by God to give the Ammonites a home, just as he expelled the Horites from Seir to make space for Esau's descendants. In another apparent footnote, readers learn that a tribe known as the Avites, whose territory stretched to the Mediterranean coastal plain, were wiped out and replaced by brigands from a land named Kaftor, modern-day Crete. According to Deuteronomy, Israel's war against the kingdoms of Canaan officially began when the mass of people moved across the canyon of Wadi Muji, then known as the Arnon Gorge, and engaged the Amorite king Sihon in battle. Moses tells his listeners that God promised him victory over the Amorites was a given, and that from this day onwards, God would infect all other nations with a fear of Israel. They will tremble and be in anguish because of them, he promised. Moses recounts how he sent messengers to Sihon, asking for safe passage through his country, promising to pay in silver for any food and water consumed on the way, as happened with Edom and Moab. This is quite a major contradiction to the account in the book of Numbers, where readers are told that Edom's king refused to let Israel pass through his nation. Later on in the Bible, the book of Judges contradicts the story that the Israelites passed through Moab, announcing that they skirted its eastern border instead, backing up the writer of the book of Numbers, who describes Moab as hostile to and terrified of Israel. In airbrushing what is written in other books, Deuteronomy is singing to its own tune here. According to Deuteronomy, Moses told Sihon that Israel's goal was to reach Jericho, but records how God made the king so stubborn and obstinate that Israel had to fight him in order to pass through his territory, winning itself the prime real estate of Heshbon in the process. Moses describes the victory. Israel struck down Sihon, his sons and his whole army, destroying their towns and leaving no survivors. In this account, all Heshbon's livestock and plunder is carried away by Israel, and Moses reports that, thanks to God's involvement, not a single town from the gorge all the way to Gilead was too strong for them. He also adds that Israel complied with the rule not to steal any land from Ammon before recapping the conquest of Bashan, which also appears effortless. Moses remembers God telling him not to fear Bashan's king and to inflict the same damage to him as Israel rained down on Sihon. The new generation of Israelites are told how their parents wiped out 60 fortified cities, as well as many villages with no defensive walls. As with Heshbon, all human life was destroyed and all livestock and treasure plundered, and the battlefront of Israel moved around 125 miles further towards Canaan as a result. Here in Deuteronomy, the territory claimed by the Israelites reaches as far as Mount Hermon, 
whereas in the book of Numbers, the new land ends considerably sooner, near the city of Heshbon, another sign that different writers are at the wheel of each book. One reason for these discrepancies might be that Moses is hoping to motivate the Israelites as they prepare for battle, and so by underplaying the difficulty and stressing the continued hand of God in their victories, they feel emboldened and ready to take on anyone. Moses describes the vast territory gained after the defeat of Bashan, but the exact geography of the conquest is uncertain. As well as Bashan, it includes a large plateau and the region of Gilead. In another flourish typical of Deuteronomy, but missing from earlier accounts, Moses tells the Israelites that Bashan's king Og was the last of the Rephaite giants, and that his bed measured an impressive 14 feet by 6 feet. For any of his listeners interested in a bit of sightseeing, he adds that the bed remains on display in the Ammonite city of Rabbah. Incidentally, the largest bed ever made measures 86 feet 11 inches long and 53 feet 11 inches wide and was built in the town of Hertme, Netherlands in 2011. Metric conversions are in the show notes. And so the book of Deuteronomy is underway. It's a retelling, but as if from a different angle. The Israelites need building up before their big push across the river into enemy territory, which is why Moses seems to dwell less on the more tawdry moments of their journey so far. As far as action sequences, it's low energy, but as far as speeches, it's a fabulous piece of propaganda. Moses recaps the Israelites' history, but puts a spin on it, and it's not the last time the Bible's writers try this trick. Still, the man needs to get his massed ranks of people across the river and his success depends on his words being compelling. As an ad man, I love it. Success or failure rides on Moses' words. Will they be enough to propel his people across into Canaan or will they turn back and make their own luck with the tribes of Gad and Reuben east of the river? Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please do follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Search Holy Bible, W-H-O-L-L-Y-B-U-Y-A-B-L-E. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Thank you. Thank you.